uh, my name is Jason Gibson, and this is a podcast, um, Service Sharp. Uh, I've got a couple of people on uh, the line with me here, Randy Haas, which is always, uh, for the most part, on here. And I also have Brent Peters and Justin Classville. Um, Brent, Justin, introduce yourselves a little bit. I'm Brent Peters. Um, I am a solution architect for ServiceNow, and I have roughly 14 years of experience in the ITSM tools. Hey, my name is Justin Claspel. I've been working in ServiceNow since uh, Eureka, and uh, I'm a service management engineer is the title. I'm mostly development, uh, heavy in the JavaScript side of things, and the service portal. So, um, Justin is my uh, code guy that I go to anytime that I'm having a problem with some sort of uh, some sort of code, whether it's JavaScript or pretty much anything. Um, and when I don't know what to do and find myself in a deep dark hole of service now, I contact uh, Brent to help me uh, see the light of what can be done there. And uh, everybody knows Randy. Randy is a leadership coach. Um, guru about everything, uh, master of all. So um, I really appreciate you guys being here. Today we're going to be talking about uh, incident and request. We're going to be talking about what is an incident and what is a request. Um, we seem to have a lot of confusion around that kind of very simple thing. And uh, we're going to go over a few best practices, both on uh, incident and request. So um, let's get started. Um, so what is the difference between an incident and a request? Uh, Brent, from your experience on the ServiceNow side, um, do people get that confused? Uh, yeah, people seem to get that confused a lot. Um, they, they don't understand the fact that instant management is really for your break-fix kind of things. This is was working yesterday, now it's not working, um, that kind of stuff, where request management is where you're requesting uh, a new uh, keyboard or you're requesting new services or a new uh, equipment. So it does confuse a lot of people. So what, what do you think the confusion is? Why is there, why is this disconnect between um, something that's broken on the incident side and I'm requesting a, a service offering or I need something on the request side? Um, some of it is uh, the people's mindset. They always think, uh, you know, it, that it's uh, something's always broken and that's why they're always doing it. Or, um, some people just even have the me mentality of if I put it in, in as an incident, people see those as they need to get done quicker. So they get the, um, they get res response quicker on those. Um, but a lot of people do have the problem of not understanding if this really is broken or not. Um, like a user might think, Hey, uh, I can't assign this project task to someone. Um, so it must be broken when it really is. They need to request for that person to have permissions in resource management or something like that. Um, so they don't totally understand that it's really not broken. It's just you need to request permission or something. Right. I also find that 
people are, they, they really want everything to be incidents. And so they start out with the ServiceNow platform and they, they do incident first and then they get trapped in this, everything's an incident because everything was an incident and they haven't, and then they launch the, the catalog separate, um, you know, after the fact and things aren't migrated over. They're still, oh, well, we still don't know this or that. Um, is Do you find that after an implementation of incident that people have that issue because they don't have, they don't have the catalog yet, right? They haven't implemented that. Um, do you find that that is a big part of that uh, kind of mentality long-term and people just can't get it out of their head? Uh, yes, I have seen that. And usually I would suggest, you know, it doesn't take much more to, to do request catalog at the same time you're doing incident management. That way you can get, you start out fresh out of the gate with the two separate kind of requests uh, or ticketing um, so that you do have your break face and you do have your request. Um, I've also seen where people um, do incident and don't want to do the request. So they just do everything either. If they're requesting something, they do them as changes and that's not right either. Um, <laughs> no, no. It's just, you know, um, best, best practice would that you just deploy them as separate, uh, right. as separate processes and do it that way. That way you're not muddling up your incident management with things that aren't really incidents that have SLAs tied to them. And, uh, you got to get this stuff done within a certain time period and all. Um, but if it's a request, you don't have to, well, it's not good to muddle that all up together. You might as well deploy them um, correctly the first time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it is interesting that it is um, not, that it is best practice to implement those two together because they do complement each other so well. Um, now, change management and things like that, you know, those can be implemented second and third, but really incident and request, they just, they just go hand in hand and it keeps things clear. So, um, so that's what we have. We have incident, break fix, something's broken. Um, you have requests. I want something. I need something. Um, now, I find that the one of the benefits to launching requests, at least as fleshed out as possible with as many requests as possible, is that there's less confusion and you can flow workflows back and forth. Now, Justin, do you do you think it's extremely important to have uh, when you launch the catalog to have it? you know, flushed out with a 10, 20, 30, how many forms do you really need to start with? Well, I really just think it completely depends on the company. You know what I mean? There's really no, really no one size fits all type of thing when it comes to the catalog. Uh, if you try to throw like processes in there instead of just requesting an item, like more of a shopping cart type thing, uh, you could have, you could have a whole lot in there. Uh, I personally follow a different route on that. I like to separate those out. You can still have a record producer in your catalog, of course, which can can be acting the same way. But I don't. Uh, I don't think you should mix catalog items 
with processes, just like you shouldn't mix incidents with catalog items. Uh, but even then, you can have a little catalog item to fill out a very basic incident if you want. I think there's actually one by default, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there is. There is. Yeah. And I'm wondering your opinion, uh, all of you guys, what is your opinion on a general request when you launch the portal? Well, I'm actually kind of a, if you first launch it uh, and you have the staff to be able to, to maintain it, uh, I think maybe the first week or two, it's maybe even longer, I guess, depending on how many users you have. Having a general type thing that then you can coach the user on what they should have used, or maybe you know now that you need to make another another request that you hadn't thought of. Uh, I, I think it's useful at the beginning. I don't think you should have one at all times because it becomes a catch-all. You know, it's like, you know, it's the first thing I'm going to fill out because I know that the help desk will see it and then transfer it where it needs to go or whatever. And uh, I don't think it's a great thing to have forever, but a general request for a very, very early release, or if you're adding a whole big group, like a whole other department's coming on and using ServiceNow, you might enable right. it for just that department. Uh, but I don't think you should have one at all times. I do think it's very useful to gather, you know, that information that you can help learn, uh, you know, your coaching that you would coach your users on. Okay. So initially, so at first, while we're still establishing the, the catalog, we're still building uh, request items. We're still building all those things. Um, keep that general request. Um, but when you get it built out, you're saying that that's when you, maybe consider turning that one off um, or at least monitoring it and pushing people to the right direction, right? Yeah, I, I think you should, you know, start out and make sure you've, you've captured what people are actually trying to use it for. Uh, you're going to start getting incidents that are requests, you know, that sort of thing, and uh, which is kind of another catch-all there as well. But I think it's, I think it has a use. I just don't, I'm not a huge believer in leaving it there at all times. Uh, because either the person may not search the catalog well enough, which is just going to add more cost to your help desk to, or whatever, whoever you have monitoring the queues. Uh, right. Yeah, no, I think it's very useful at the beginning, but I'm not a huge, not a huge fan otherwise. I'd rather just create, if a team needs something or if we get a, enough requests for one particular thing, I think it's better to make, even if it's a tiny little, you know, a very specific thing. I'm having a hard time thinking of one. Um, uh, but server request or you know virtual server request or something to that effect well those for sure yeah um definitely want to do that but even you know little things like i need a new chair or reserve a reserve a office space or i don't know just little little things i wish i had a better idea in my head of what one would be but uh, sure you know it's still useful to create a very specific catalog item because it's not like it takes a long time if you have a five field catalog item you know what i mean right uh, and I think it's important for long-term reporting, right? It's it's difficult to do a report that says, "Yes, I have these 400 forms, and that's and it's very specific." Now I have one form with 400 items, and it's all general requests. What do I do with that, right? You know, it just doesn't it it doesn't make uh, reporting what's being done very well. It just is. Oh, we have 400 general requests go through well what does that actually mean we don't we don't even know were they server requests were they you know requesting a a, a mouse what were they um and so it makes that difficult 
So I, I get where you would want to disable that eventually. Uh, and I'm going to ask another dreaded question. Emails to create incidents, yes or no? Nobody? I Well, I'm trying to form my sentence, but I don't care for them. Personally, I don't care for, for emails creating. For one thing, you don't get all the information you need from those emails. Um, I, I'd rather direct the users to the uh, self-service portal and say, go fill out the form and kind of direct them because that also kind of directs them to self-service so they can do knowledge searches and uh, see what could fix their own issue instead of having to open a ticket. Um, that way you kind of direct them that way. Um, and also the email, it, it is possible. We I've used it before. It, it's, it, it's great. It works fine, but it just doesn't get the information that um, most technicians are going to need uh, from the customer. So. Yeah. I, okay. I think that um, the key there is that you, really when you're designing all of this, you want to direct the user as much as possible because they're going to take the path of least resistance. And so um, the path of least resistance is stuff's broke, fix it. And that, you know, that just wastes the service desk time as they're trying to triage tickets and, and things like that. So the best approach is to spend the time to really thoughtfully think about how do we drive the user to quickly give us the details that we need. And so you've got the two, uh, the two sides of it that you've got to balance. You've got to make it to where it's easy for the user so that they don't sit back and say, well, I'm not putting a ticket in at all. I'm just going to complain to my boss. Um, but you've also got to make it to where there's enough of a process around it to where you do actually get some useful information and, and you can take advantage of some of the automation features and some of the, the power of, like he said, bring up a knowledge base article. Hey, have you thought about rebooting? You know, um, you know, do you know how to type your password in kind of things? So um, it's just kind of a balancing act, I think, there. I pretty much agree with you. I, I do think you should have it for replying, of course, but for creating, I'm not a, I'm not a fan. I'd rather you coach the user on which ticket they should have filled out. Uh, I mean, life is about learning, right? So you might as well make the team work correctly and uh, point them to the right thing to get the action. It'll be quicker in the end for them as well if they do it that way. Because uh, creating a ticket that doesn't have any info, help desk has to call them back or whoever. You know, someone has to call them back and try to get the basics of the, day, uh, of the information needed and then pass that to the people who would be working it. And, you know, in the end, it's just taking longer for, uh, for you to get what you need, where if you just fill out the correct form, it'd be done you know, go to the right people the first time with the right info, or at least yeah. supposedly the right um, info if you filled it out right. What I've found is it becomes a crutch just need something else that they're going to use it anyway, right? Right. Partially, we... <laughs> Sorry about that. No, what I was trying to say is, is they use it as a crutch as well, right? Yeah. I think that if you absolutely want to have a fire and forget method, like you, you for whatever reason, you can't see your users not uh, firing an email, then set it as a way to educate the user. So, in, for instance, uh, an email to the help desk uh, does not trigger a ticket to be created, but it does go into a queue where someone on the help desk calls the user and then walks them through 
creating an incident and takes the time to say, you know, click here, this is knowledge, click here, this is this. Um, this is the fastest way to get the response. Uh, and then you have to hold to it, you know, basically say that it doesn't matter who you are. If you email it, it's going to be a callback and we're going to walk you through this process to get you in the queue, but you're not actually in the queue and have a priority until we get a hold of you and do that process. Um, I think that's fine to do it that way as a, as a chance to educate users, but um, you know, eventually you want to cut that off and, and not let them, not let them shoot emails over. Yeah. So coming up in the, in, in some of the, newer releases is going to be a integration with Microsoft Outlook. Have you guys looked at that any? Do you think that that might be potentially a, a, a huge time saver for people uh, to be able to create incidents from Outlook? I mean, you can already do that with making your own Outlook plugin, which is not a complex thing. Uh, but I mean, if they're releasing their own, then yeah, that's it's handy to have, you know, especially with, at least the places I have been, they you know they usually have like a phishing alert that you can put up there, or some sort of uh, you know notify security or or whatnot. Uh, so people are kind of used to, uh, or at least some would be used to finding buttons up there anyway to maybe to maybe use. I don't necessarily think. Uh, now, granted, I'm you know IT side of things, so from my side, I w I don't believe I would ever even realize it's there. Even if you told me about it, I'd probably forget because it's not. I don't think going to my email is, is you know, how I would access a, a help desk thing. Uh, most places, I say many places nowadays have a, a, you know, a landing page or some sort of app page where you go to and you can uh, click on what, you know, a website or load an app, you know, that sort of thing from it. So right. I'm not entirely certain that it's overly useful, but a few people that would, or maybe it's a larger percent of your standard end user and me just being, you know, an IT for so long, it, to me, it just doesn't make sense that I go to that to then go somewhere else. Right. But I don't use that when you can hurt to get an entire stuff. app to submit tickets through, you know, you know what I'm saying? Has anybody ever seen yeah. somebody do that, write an entire app just to submit tickets? Uh, instead of going into service now, <laughs> yes. I don't. Yeah. I don't know that that might have happened somewhere. That and maybe we could have created it in like five minutes a different way and be more effective on it. Yes, <laughs> but um, I could see maybe using email if you're uh, like a, a and uh, just implementing ServiceNow yeah. and you have the email template and and a button on Outlook, but most. If you're like in the system and you've had it for a while and you have your customers already using the self-service portal, just continue to, I, I would just continue to keep that updated and do it that way too. I think the, probably for me, the only benefit would be real end users, like last line end users, not ITIL, not people that work in the system every day, but real end users that want to submit something and they can click a button and then it bring up the actual form and they fill the form out and it creates it in service. Now I see that as potentially as being a benefit. It's not like a normal email where you would send it and it'd be blank. It would have all the same information as the form itself. Now that seems beneficial to me. Um, what would be beneficial to ITIL in my, in my opinion, what, what I'm looking forward to is the idea that 
you'll be able to also create a personal task uh, from that same button. So you'll cr- click it and create a pay task and it'll create it uh, that email as a pay task. So I think that will be beneficial to keeping organized, but uh, that's, that's what I'm looking forward to for sure. Okay. Now one place I have used email very successfully to open up tickets is um, just a quick and simple event management from a, another system. Uh, like um, a, a, there's a network error and the event system emails that to the, the technicians. They can also email to ServiceNow, open a ticket and assign it to that group so they have a ticket now that they can work on and and all that kind of stuff. So using it on the event management part where it's always going to be the same type of email, same format every time, I can see using it that. But using email for the customer to just plain text and put whatever they want. Um, I haven't seen that work very successfully. Yeah. yeah and I, I will say on that note that uh, we've done things like uh, proof point alerts, right? Where they've, they've got the proof point alerts and we create tickets for the security team and do an inbound action. I, I think that is a fantastic way to um, automate things uh, quite a bit. Uh, the problem with some of those things with the, with events is not if every event is really an incident. Uh, and so defining those things is a little more difficult at times. Uh, but that's also why you have event management and things to that effect for, uh, for some of those as well. And security operations has a whole bunch of other uh, functionalities, but those will be for another podcast. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So I'm new, say I'm new, never been in service now. Um, how much should I customize incident? Day one, none. <laughs> okay. would, All right, good. I would agree with that. It, um, instant management in service now pretty much aligns with ITIL's instant management. Um, so most of the fields that are on there are going to be the ones that you are going to want to use company-wide to get your prioritization, your what's actually wrong, who needs to be contacted, what assignment group, that kind of stuff is already there by default. So for the most part, there's no reason to add any customized fields when you first start out. Okay. Well, yeah, I definitely think you should, you know, give it a trial run of sorts, if you will. Because uh, when you're thinking of what, you know, every little fringe case that you want to be able to cover, uh, even if you don't necessarily think it's a fringe case, but you know, if something happens five times every six months, it's probably not worth having a field for it. Yeah. Uh, it may very well be if you need some sort of auditing report or what, I mean, I'm sure there's a scenario it is valuable, but overall I would, I would definitely give a good, uh, a good try with what's there by default. Um, uh, spend time filling out the categories, subcategories, make sure you have your departments and your assignment groups and all that. Uh, that should be your main effort I would say to go to go live with incident uh, yeah. and just try it out see you know over time you'll be able to tell what was missed uh, the workers themselves will be able to say boy it would have been nice if I could have you know had this sub it's probably just categories and subcategories would be my guess be that you could assign things differently but right actually right. field wise I, I don't think I'd play with very much at the start because you, you you might just be ending up adding fields that have such limited use, they really aren't valuable. Yes, I would agree with that. So start out, 
as basic as possible, as close to out of the box as possible, and then just kind of do continual improvement. Is that, is that what, what, what really that, uh, is the, is probably the best practice on that? A continual improvement is something you should always do with the process. Um, and that's with every process. So yeah, you should always go back every, well, if you're first starting out, you could do it two months later, then you can do it like four months later, every six months. Um, most, most time, whenever you get something settled and working, you would do a 12 month continual improvements. Um, audit on it and make sure that everything's working, that you are getting the info you need and everything from there. Okay. All right, man. So we've got a lot, we've got a lot of content here and we could probably go on forever talking about the intricacies of incident or request and things to that effect. Um, I, I think that one of the great things about it is um, everybody does it a little differently uh, and there's a lot of opinions on incident and request and what should be in there and things to that effect. But I think we covered some great best practices. Uh, every organization is different, but like Brent and Justin, we always encourage to keep it as out of the box as possible. Um, and, you know, make sure that you have good, solid business justifications for any kind of, uh, configuration and customization, especially customizations, but, uh, make sure that that, that business need is there. I'd like to point out one quick thing as well. If you are moving from another tool to service now, take that opportunity to actually look at your process and maybe you know, maybe using ServiceNow's out of the box will. It'll be different, of course. Uh, I, just so many people want to make all the fields and the, and the general layout look exactly like the previous tool they had. There's a reason you're no longer on that tool. Maybe it's as simple as cost or something, but I think you should definitely uh, try, to, try to give the process a chance that's inside ServiceNow before you just try to du duplicate your, or replicate rather, your previous tool you were using. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like bringing your bad habits, right? I 110% agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, how, how many times have we seen that, though? <laughs> yeah. Pretty much uh, every project that we've we, we've stepped into, that's been the the mindset is make it look like what we're doing now. Um, but, right. you know, they spent a significant amount of time and money building it to match ITIL. Um, and there's a reason why it's continuing to become the most popular um, most popular platform out there for this. Um, so, you know, why reinvent the wheel? Um, it's, it's a very unique way of working with tickets. Uh, well, I say, I mean, to me, it's, it's very logical, but then again, I've been in the tool for so long now, I don't really remember a whole lot of other tools. So, uh, but yeah, definitely, you know, give it a chance and uh, you know, preaching to the choir here, I suppose, but, Definitely, uh, definitely try to stay out of the box and, and just give it a give it a chance with what's there already. Add fields later uh, if you need them. Extend tables, you know that sort of thing. Try not to do too much on base tables. I'm sure that'll be another video later or podcast later. <laughs> down the road. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So definitely. Anything that we want to cover as far as best practices for requests? Oh man. Um, 
make sure that you create a couple of things correctly. First is um, you have variable sets. Use them, but use them for very specific purpose. Things that are repeatable that you can put on multiple items. We've uh, had customers that put every variable in the form in a variable set. And that's how they did every form. It is not for that. It is strictly for the few things that you have that are repeatable over and over and over. And remember, your customers are looking at this. So make sure it, you don't have these weird hanging variables out on the right-hand side um, or weird format on things. Uh, I mean, that, that gets... Um, that is what makes people drive people away from uh, of filling out a form is when it looks weird or it, it looks like 1980s things like that. So if you're creating them, make sure and create them uh, that have a nice look to them um, and as well as functional. And to go on that real quick, if, if you, I came from web development before I came to service now and that brought with me uh, assumptions for, uh, you know, like things like DOM manipulation and things like that, which, if you have, basically what I'm trying to say is if you have a developer that you are converting from another tool to now be your ServiceNow developer, make them, highly suggest them, give them bonuses, all that to go through the okay. developer courses because they will, that's the only way you're going to get their eyes open to some of the, the, the unique methods that are available to them with the ServiceNow API. There's so many things that it does for you that you will try to do on your own and some things are blocked by ServiceNow because they're trying to, you know, maintain an integrity of the look and feel and everything. Uh, but anyway, use the developer site. It's it's free. You don't even have to have a uh, an account of any type. You just, create, you know, have your Gmail or whatever your personal email is, sign up, take the courses, and, uh, and learn some of the uh, ins and outs of how the development is really – even if you're a wonderful JavaScript developer, you're not going to be able to do pure JavaScript because there's some – you know, some little twerk, uh, tweaks here or there that you need to learn how to use. <laughs> Get element by ID. That comes to mind. <laughs> yes, yes, that is something that commonly, you will not do any DOM manipulation at all. So learn what they give you. They have ways you can get that data that's actually easier once you learn how to use it. Uh, and easier to read, more readability, I believe. I don't know if that's the proper way to say that sentence, but we're going to use it. Uh, <laughs> hey, that's right. The other thing is keep your forms as simple as possible. Gather the information you need, but keep them simple. Because if someone brings up a form that has 30 or 40 fields right there as soon as it comes up, they're going to be so overwhelmed, they're not going to fill it out. But if you kind of drive them to those fields, like ask a question, and then if they answer it this way, these three fields come up and show up, that kind of stuff. You don't want to do that a whole lot, but you don't want to also put 30 or 40 fields on the yeah. form when you first start out. It frustrates and confuses the customers a lot of time. Absolutely. Use those UI policies and UI uh, and uh, catalog actions. That's really important. Um, also, when you're developing your forms, if you have the self-service portal, make sure that the form works in the portal and in ServiceNow because they do display differently. The functions work differently on the portal than they do in within ServiceNow. So you got to make sure that you have both functioning the same. 
Well, in the JavaScript, right? Uh, Justin, you'd probably be the best on this. The, the JavaScript doesn't work all the way in the portal the same way as it does in the in the base view, right? Yeah, to do things like script includes, uh, you have to call them through AJ, you know, asynchronous methods. Uh, you're not allowed to. Basically, they're trying to make it so you can't force the page to take longer to load for most of the things. Uh, but there, you have an easy way to do that in a client script. Is a little drop down tells you, uh, I think it says UI type, and it's either desktop or mobile slash service portal. So you can make one for each if you have something that is unique like that, where you need to use uh, script includes or I'm trying to think what else is in it. It's really just script includes, I believe, that's going to be the big difference. Um, when you do glide record queries, you have to do uh, loopbacks now to make them work on the portal. They still work in the UI, but you have to have them on the portal. You have to do a loopback where you didn't used to before. So that's part of that DOM manipulation that they've taken away. Um, For those that don't understand what the loopback is, what is it? That the that you're actually referring to in the in that. So when um, you go ahead, go ahead. Um, when you're doing a query, normally you you would do okay. I want to set my table. I want to add my query of look up this sys ID. And you say query. Then you say if there's a next thing, go on and do what I want you to do. Um, in a loopback, you just do the query and then you tell the query to call a function. Then you have to have a function on the same script that does the rest of the stuff. If there's something there, uh, I want you to do update this field with the information and so on. So, right. Okay. Yeah. So there, there is uh, and it, it constantly changes. So ServiceNow is constantly evolving, constantly changing. Um, I mean, the portal didn't exist, you know, what, five versions ago. Um, so as things move forward and we're using the, the portal for things and we're moving forward and the type of coding that they use, um, remember it's, it's all rendered in Angular and Bootstrap on the portal, right? Yes, it is. And you have, just because you don't have, if you're not using the ESS service portal, that doesn't mean you're not using the service portal. If you have like time cards or you're using dashboard, some of the dashboards or workbenches, those are all through the, the service portal stuff. So um, you, you kind of have to start learning and using that stuff because they're starting to use it more and more in service now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, I think this was a great conversation. Um, we will continue to have these conversations on a regular basis. Um, so look for the next podcast in, in a week. Um, again, thank you for joining us and we will, uh, we will look forward to, uh, to, to seeing you next time. Appreciate the invite. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah.